This podcast is available in video at fpcgulfport.org and fpcgulfport on YouTube. You know, one of the nicknames that history has given our friend Jonah here is to call him the reluctant prophet. Jonah, the reluctant prophet. Now, as nicknames go, that's kind of bad. I don't know about you, but I'd prefer to be known as something different. Perhaps the faithful prophet, the humble prophet, the patient prophet, the kind prophet. Maybe the he tried really, really hard prophet. Anything but this. Jonah, the reluctant prophet. Who wants the history books to look back on you and say you were this reluctant, apathetic, lazy guy who wouldn't go when God had called you? Now, I never met Jonah. We only get four chapters to work with here. Maybe he was just wonderful in other aspects of his life. I don't know. But in this window, in this four-chapter window, what we see here does not reflect well upon this man or his job performance. In fact, it would appear that Jonah earned every part of that nickname. With that said, this morning, as we begin, we need to try to figure out what makes Jonah tick here. Why is he doing the things that he's doing? All of history, all of Christendom has frowned on this guy. So let's do him the courtesy of at least trying to understand. If Jonah was so reluctant, then why? Why was he reluctant? What was his problem with the Ninevites? What was it about Nineveh that prompted him to get on a boat and go to such lengths to avoid taking God's message to them? Well, in order to understand what's going on in Jonah's head, let's understand something more about the Ninevites, the people that he was sent to talk to. It's helpful to remember that Nineveh was not a nation per se. It was a large city within a nation. Does anyone know what the nation itself was? Assyria. So you have Nineveh, the large capital city, primary city within the greater nation of Assyria. Now, when you think of the Assyrians, do you think of them as this lovable, cuddly bunch? Is that what history records about the Assyrians? This wonderful, wonderful group of individuals? Well, no, that's not what we see. In fact, all of history, even secular history, says that these guys were rough. These guys were mean. These guys were unpleasant. See, Nineveh, in a world filled with pagan cities, Nineveh, in some special way, was so bad, was so wicked, was so pagan, was so mean, that among all the cities on the face of the earth, the wickedness of Nineveh rose up like a foul stench to the nostrils of God, which is what he said in chapter 1. Nineveh, its wickedness exceeded the wickedness of its even most wicked contemporaries. Nineveh was a bad place. Now, what did they do that was so bad? Well, Nineveh was famous or infamous for their cruelty. The cruelty of the Assyrians, the cruelty of Nineveh was what they were most famous for. Now, what sort of cruelty was that? Well, in an effort to keep this PG-rated sermon, there's only so much I can honestly say. The Syrians, as you might be aware, you know, they conquered other nations. But when other nations conquered one another, typically what they would do is that they'd leave people alive, and then they'd put up a garrison there. And they'd use those people to farm the land, and the garrison would watch over things. So that's how conquering and pillaging usually worked. You didn't kill everybody. You left some people alive. You left the peasants and people alive to till the fields, and then you just ruled over them. Assyria, eh. That was not the approach of the Assyrians. When the Assyrians came to town, they did not come to put in garrisons and to govern some locals. No, their approach was to kill everyone. When the Assyrians rolled into town, they didn't leave a man, a woman, or a child alive. Furthermore, after they had killed local population, 
on the ruins of the walls of the cities around. They would take the flayed skin, the heads, the parts of those that they had defeated, and put them in places of visibility so that the world would know, the travelers, sojourners, people who passed by would know the fierceness of the Assyrians. In a world that was already filled with evil people, these were especially evil people. These were hardcore sadists. If you want more details than that, consult your local library. With that said, in chapter 1, that's why we read that the wickedness of Nineveh had risen up before God in some special way. God saw these people, saw what they were doing, saw the way they treated their fellow image bearers, and it offended him. God had problems with the Ninevites. Well, so did Jonah. So did Jonah, this prophet of God living in the smaller nation of Israel, which was not terribly far away from the northern country of Assyria. Jonah had problems with the Assyrians. He knew their reputation. He knew the way they conducted themselves. He knew how wicked and pagan they were. And so, of course, Jonah didn't like them. Honestly, if you and I were alive in that time, we wouldn't like the Ninevites either. With that said, even though God and Jonah both had issues with Nineveh, where they differed was in what to do about it. You see, in Jonah's view, the right response is that God would go and search throughout heaven, pick up the heaviest boulder he could find, and hurl it down upon them. To Jonah, the Ninevites were the right target, the right people, the perfect candidate for some good old-fashioned fire and brimstone. And yet, what makes the book of Jonah so fascinating is that even though Jonah was right, these were terrible sinners who deserved every ton of that boulder, even though Jonah was right, what makes the book of Jonah so fascinating is that God doesn't do that. He doesn't send them a boulder. He doesn't send them fire and brimstone. Rather, he sends them a man with a message. Specifically, he sent Jonah, the son of Amittai. In a moment, I'm going to reread verses 1 through 4, but let me offer one more introductory observation. Given how weak Jonah is, and we've talked about his weakness in the previous chapters, but given how weak he was, and given how wicked Nineveh was, you would think, if you're standing back and you said, wait a second, God, 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 Nineveh's really tough and really mean and really you know, rough around the edges, and Jonah is the most flawed prophet we got, you're going to send that guy there and expect something to happen. God, I'm sorry, but this is a low probability mission. The man himself didn't want to go. It's not just that he was weak and flawed. He didn't even want to be there, and the Ninevites surely didn't want him to arrive. You had no human party that was invested in a good outcome here. And yet, what we're going to see in this text is that the response of the Ninevites to this one man's words was that the entire city came to repentance from the smallest to the greatest. What we're going to see in today's text is that one sermon that constituted eight words had a greater effect than any sermon ever preached on this globe, given and preached by a man who didn't even want to be there to the most wicked pagan people of his day. The most effective revival, the most effective awakening, whatever you want to call it, took place here through one sermon constituting eight words that we have before us. Let's see what those words were. Let's look at verses 1 through 4. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, 
and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose, and he went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extant. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out, and listen to what he said. He says, and yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. All right. As you remember from chapter 1, it was only a couple weeks ago, so I trust you still got it. But as you might remember in chapter 1, chapter 1, the very first words began this way. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Well, guess what? Chapter 3 begins the same way. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. In both places, chapter 1 and in chapter 3, God's telling Jonah the exact same thing. And what that suggests is that all the hardships that Jonah faced in between chapters or in the in-between time, all those things that he suffered from being swallowed by the whale and going down to the waters, all this was unnecessary, probably could have been avoided if he had just done what God had told them to back in chapter 1. God told them to arise, go to Nineveh, that great city in chapter 1, and tells them again in chapter 3, all the drama, all the pain, all the anxiety, all the hardship, being swallowed by a whale, all of that, you would think, could have been avoided if he had just done what God told him to do from Jump Street, from the very beginning here. God's will for you doesn't change just because you run from it. God's will for you doesn't change just because you try to go the exact opposite direction. He will get you where you need to be. You can take to the bank. This is proof positive. If God has a desire for your life, he'll get you there. The only question for you and I is how beat up will you be by the time you arrive? You see, if the will of God is like a stream you swim in, then the question for you and I is, how much time do we live out that voyage, beating ourselves up against the rocks? If the will of God is a stream, and he tells us what to do and where to go, how much time do we spend trying to swim upstream, going the opposite direction, beating ourselves up against the rocks, so that by the time we finally arrive there, we're all bloody and beaten up? You and I spend far too much time trying to go against the will of God, or hitting the shoals rather than simply hearing and obeying. If Jonah had done what God had told him to do in chapter 1, he would not have suffered so needlessly. With that said, the suffering was evidently something that he was committed to undergoing based on his desire to flee from the hand of God, so God allowed him to do it, but he still brought him to where he needed to be by the time we get to verse 1 in chapter 3. So verse 1, God tells Jonah, go to Nineveh, same thing he had told him before. Now, at this point, who knows what's going on in Jonah's mind. You know, God tells him the same thing, but this time he responds. This time Jonah says, okay, God, I get it. He may have been worried about what was going to swallow him next if he didn't, but he obeys. And he says, all right, I'll go and I'll head north. Now, you notice that verse 4 refers to a three-day journey. Now, this is not referring to the time it took for him to get from the beach to Nineveh. There's no beach in the world that's three days from this city. Instead, it's a reference to how long it took to walk around the city itself. This was a truly great metropolis for its day. Now, let's say you're Jonah. So, you've dried off, and then he gets going and heads towards Nineveh. It probably took him a couple of weeks, at least, to get there. But here's the thing. As he starts getting closer to Nineveh, he starts seeing some of the hallmarks of these people. These are the sort of people that would put the heads of their enemies up on pikes around the region in order to enforce this idea of their cruelty and their reign and their power and the like. So Jonah, he's traveling to Nineveh, but the closer he gets, undoubtedly, the more creeped out he gets. Undoubtedly, the more he understands just by approaching Nineveh, the wickedness of the city. So what did he do upon arrival? 
Did he slink in unnoticed? Well, it doesn't appear that he did that. Whatever God had done in his heart and mind at this point, it still didn't make him love Nineveh. He still wanted to see them judged, but he did have some bravery at this point. So verse 4 says that as soon as he enters the city on the first day, he began to proclaim a very simple message, a message of judgment, a message that the people had done wrong and God was watching, a message that people had done wickedly and a holy God was going to bring judgment upon them. Specifically, he said, eight words in English, five words in Hebrew. He says, in 40 days, the city of Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, what sort of reaction would you expect? Again, remember, this is a guy who doesn't even want to be there, preaching to people who don't want him there. So what would you expect? What sort of response would he get? How would the people respond to his words? Well, let's look at their response in verses 5 through 7. So the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then the word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne. He laid aside his robe. He covered himself with sackcloth. He sat in ashes. And he caused to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and the nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock taste anything. Don't let them eat or drink water. Now, earlier in today's sermon... We came to two readily obvious conclusions. Number one, Jonah is a pretty mediocre prophet. Number two, Nineveh was a strong and terrifying city. Again, if we were just betting men, watching what was unfolding there, I don't think we would have liked Jonah's odds. That the weakest prophet in scripture would go to one of the wickedest cities of all time, we would not have bet that their response would be what we see in verses 5 through 7. We would not have bet that the entire city would repent. If ever there was a hard-hearted, hard-headed culture, if ever there was a city that should have been unresponsive to this sort of warning, it would have been Nineveh. If ever across the pages and annals of human history, you were to find one city, one place, and one era, one time, that you would have thought would be the most resistant to hearing the word of God, you would have said it would be Nineveh. And if ever there was a prophet that would be the most unlikely to be used to affect repentance, it would have been Jonah. When Jonah walks into town, at best, at best, you thought they might have laughed him out. That's the best possible outcome you might have bet upon. At worst, you would have thought it would take two seconds and his head would be on a pike outside the city walls with all the other ones. However, you would not have expected what we see in verse 5, that the people believed God. Jonah preached a message and the people believed that message. The people believed God, and they proclaimed a fast, and they put on sackcloth. This reluctant Jewish prophet preached an eight-word sermon, and it brought about the greatest repentance and response of any sermon we have in recorded history, at least for the scope of those that it immediately reached. So I ask you, how is that possible? We've just identified they're the worst, most hard-headed, most least likely to hear his message. And he was no great shakes himself. He was a guy who was poorly equipped to even give this message. So how? How do we believe that this occurred? You'd be hard-pressed to find any other case where a single sermon brought about the sort of reaction that we see in these verses. It's unprecedented. It makes us wonder why they responded this way and how. Well, let's deal with the question of why first. Why did the Ninevites repent? Well, the short answer is this, because God enabled it. God not only wanted them to repent, but he enabled their hearts to do so. You see, God has always been in the grace business. 
God's always been in the mercy business. He's always been in the salvation business. What did Jonah say in chapter 2? He said, salvation is of the Lord. Well, it didn't apply just to one dude under the water. It also applied to others here. God saves people, even in the places and even to the people that you would think would be the least likely candidates. You know, sometimes we think we can guess who he could save or should save or would save. But the reality is that he does his own good pleasure. And sometimes he determines to sow seeds of repentance and grace in the hearts of people you would say, no way. Saul of Tarsus, anyone? King Nebuchadnezzar, the Ninevites here. If you want to know why they repented in Jonah 3, the short answer, the correct answer is because God ordained their repentance. God used an eight-word sermon from a reluctant prophet to help bring repentance and change to their hearts. That's the answer why. People repented because God decreed that they would. As a side note, that's not unusual. You see, what surprises us here is the scope, how many people. But it's not unusual that he says pagans, is it? What was the book? What book did we study before we studied the book of Jonah? What were we studying like a month ago? The book of Ruth. And Ruth was from where? Moab. It's not unusual that God should sow seeds of repentance and draw even pagans to himself. Just last month we were talking about this. What stands out to us is how many. And we say, well, yeah, sure, he could do it with one. You know, maybe a group, but family or what have you. But then we come to the Ninevites. It's like, oh man, nah, nah, nah. He couldn't do that. It shocks us numerically. However, the principles shouldn't shock us. God knocks Saul of Tarsus off his horse. He's breathing out threats and murder to the Christians. God knocks him off his horse, changes his hearts, enables and persuades him to turn to Christ. And that's exactly what he does. The thief on the cross. There was two thieves on the cross. They're both mocking Jesus. Then God acts, changes the heart of the one to Christ, right? He turns and he trusts in Christ. God is still in the salvation business. And sometimes he chooses the last people you would think he would save. Well, that's what happened here. With that said, how was this repentance manifest? Well, when the pagan king of Nineveh heard God's words, through God's grace, doing something in his heart. Remember God hardened the heart of Pharaoh? Well, it seems here he softens the heart of the king of Nineveh. And so what does he do? Well, he steps down from his throne. That's not insignificant. He steps down from his throne and he takes off his robe. And if you know anything about thrones and royal robes, you know this much. They are used to visually depict your reign and rule and authority of anyone that enters into your chambers. When you're sitting on a throne, wearing the royal robe, you're the king, your word goes. Well, here, what does he do? He takes these things off. Before God, he recognizes that there is a greater king. He doesn't just take them off and like stand there and kind of look around, hey, what's going on? He puts the sackcloth, the ashes. Something happened in this guy's heart. Something that you couldn't explain other than it must be the work of God. And so he issues edicts and commands and he says, you know what? We've done wrong. In fact, he addresses the violence of his own people. Remember what we said? These were a people that were reviled because of the violent nature of the way they went about their business. One of these verses, he calls out violence and he says, we have done wrong. Now, a question a lot of people ask, and you're maybe thinking it, you say, all right, all right. Was this guy being sincere? If someone came to me and said that they were going to squash me like a bug if I didn't do blank, wouldn't I be inclined to do blank? At least, you know, even if my heart wasn't any different, wouldn't I want to escape judgment by at least feigning some sort of response? So a lot of times folk thinks, well, maybe he was just 
being sincere. This is just kind of a short-term thing. He's trying to avoid judgment. People say, you know, could anyone's hearts truly have been changed on this day? Well, that is a good question. And one of the reasons it's a good question is this, because within roughly 100 years, Nineveh would be destroyed. You see, whatever happened in this particular day, in this particular area, evidently it didn't last because the prophecies of another prophet named Nahum would come true for the Assyrians and for Nineveh. Nineveh would be destroyed. It absolutely would be. Within a hundred years or so of Jonah's visit, God's judgment would come upon the city. Within a hundred years or so, their old habits would return. With that said, how could their repentance have been sincere in the first place if within a hundred years they fell apart at the seams? How could they have been sincere if within a hundred years or so God judged them anyway because they were that bad, that wicked at that point? Wasn't the repentance fake or superficial or what have you? Well, no. No, and I don't have all the time to give all the reasons why, but I will give you one a very good reason. Here's what Jesus has to say about the matter in Matthew 12, verse 41. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. He's talking to those who are engaged in their sin, who don't have faith, who hate him. And he says this. He says, Oh, Pharisees, the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, one greater than Jonah is here. You see, what Jesus was doing in order to address the false religion and the lack of faith and the lack of repentance of the Pharisees, Jesus invokes the legitimate repentance of the Ninevites. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that in the day yet to come, God's people will rise up in judgment of a wicked world. Well, God's people in Matthew 12 includes those from Nineveh of the age in which Jonah preached. In the eyes of Jesus, there was repentance in Nineveh. Repentance that brought salvation to the point that some Ninevites will rise up in the last judgment. All right, let's look at this repentance a little further. Let's look at verses 8 and 9. Verse 8, But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that's in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we might not perish? All right, as we see in these two verses, upon hearing God's warning, the king had decreed a course of action that he hoped would forestall God's judgment upon the nations. So the king, something's happened in his heart. He is now able to recognize that he and his people have sinned. And so he repents. And yet he still isn't sure what's going to happen next. God hasn't made any promises about what's going to happen. Other than in 40 days, if there isn't repentance, doom is going to strike. So the king knew that his people had done wrong. He knew that they loved violence for violence's sake. He knew that they'd earned God's wrath. He knew that they deserved destruction. And he hopes that if they turn and repent... Utilizing the most extreme forms of repentance, which is self-deprivation. You and I live in a culture and age where we say, I'm sorry, God. I'm sorry. We very seldom, very rarely marry up our repentance to any sort of activity where we refrain from anything in life. Well, here even the pagans saw that the repentance could and should be marked with some sort of outward form that spoke to what was going on in their hearts. So sitting in sackcloth and ashes, avoiding food and even drink here, at least for a season, this was their response. Now, did that cause God to change his mind? In fact, can God change his mind? Is that the way God works? Well, let's look at our final verse, verse 10. Verse 10. Then God saw their works. 
He didn't just hear from their lips that they repented. That's not just what it says. He says that he saw them begin to act differently. Repentance is not just something we do with our lips. It's a turning away from that which we previously used to do. You know the old mobster movies? You'd have the mobsters, they'd go into confession and they'd confess all the horrible things that they did. And that would buy them absolution to do what? To go out and sin again. And then come back and confess and do it all over again. That's not repentance. Repentance is when you confess and then you turn to a different lifestyle. You do something different. Well, that's what God sees them doing here. Verse 10, God saw their works that they turned from their evil ways. And so he relented from the disaster that he said he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. You know, the whole Bible, especially the Old Testament, is filled with times when prophets would go and warn the people that they'd done wrong and that God was watching. The Old Testament is filled with times when God warned the people of coming judgment. Now, was that judgment ever avoidable? Well, yes. God would remind them, here's what's coming. And he even gave them a time frame. In this case, 40 days. He says, look, you're on the tracks. The train is coming through. With that said, the intention in warning them was to cause them or prompt them to turn from that which they were doing to avoid the fate that God would otherwise bring down. God did this all the time. Just read the prophets. And you see, he does it all the time. One example, 2 Chronicles 7. God says, he says this to his own people. He says, if my people, which are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, not just say nice platitudes to make me think that they're sorry, but turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will heal their land. Time and time again, both to the Jews and even the pagans, God threatened judgment and then called people to repentance. And if the people repented and turned, then he relented from that judgment. Now, does that mean that God is double-minded? Is God being wishy-washy when he goes from one course of action to another? Well, of course not. See, whenever scripture uses language like God relented or changed his mind about something, it does so through something we call anthropomorphic language. See, anthropomorphic language is in terms and concepts to describe something about God in a way that we're familiar with. When Scripture says that God's eyes look over the globe to see those who are righteous, when Scripture talks about his hands or his feet or these sorts of things, this is anthropomorphic language. It's a way of explaining something God is doing using terminology that we understand. Well, that's what we see here. When it says God relented, it's not like God goes, oh my goodness, what was I thinking? Whew, boy, that was a close one. I'll do something different, I think. That's not the way it works. Rather, he enfolds our repentance and our turning into a divine decree that began before we were born. That's what we see here. The idea of relenting is not God sitting around hemming and hawing in heaven about what to do. Rather, in this case in verse 10, it's an example of God warning the people that they're in danger and then intervening and ordaining a better outcome through his grace. So when the Ninevites turned in verses 6 through 9, it didn't shock God. God was like, oh my goodness, they repented? Wow, that's not the case. He had set in motion the very sequence of events that had brought about the repentance to begin with. All right, given the time, let me wrap up with a couple of just brief final thoughts. In Jonah 3, we see that God's grace was extended to some really unlovable people. We see God's grace extended to the people that we would have trouble giving grace to. And it should be encouraging to us to know that this is the way that God is. Because we can be as unlovable as the Ninevites or Jonah in our own ways. 
We have broken the laws of God just as they have, so it should be encouraging to us that God is willing to extend grace even to the most hard-hearted. Just like Jonah or the Ninevites, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and yet it's encouraging for us to know that God sends us His grace, His word, and His Son to rescue us from judgment. With that said, don't take that for granted. Don't take that for granted. See, the Ninevites didn't deserve this. Sometimes we fall into the trap of thinking, you know, I'm just so lovable, of course God loves me. Now, you would never say that, but you might think that way. Sometimes we just think, well, yeah, of course, I, I get it why he loves me. I, I, understand, I understand. I love you too. You know, we think there's some merit we bring to this equation by which he has given us grace. Well, no, 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 no. The Ninevites didn't deserve grace, neither do you and I. And as recipients of that grace, we should commit ourselves to sanctification. If God saves a people or a nation, in the case of Nineveh, then they should live accordingly. With that said, the Ninevites did not live accordingly, at least for an extended period of time. As we said before, although a generation, or at least some portion of the people alive at this time, may have come to faith, may have been saved to Jonah 3, within roughly 100 years, the people would forget God once again, and the very scary prophecy of another prophet, Nahum, would come to pass. Nahum 3 says this, speaking to the Ninevites, speaking to the Assyrians. Your shepherds slumber, O king of Assyria. Your nobles rest in the dust. Your people are scattered on the mountains, and no one is there to gather them. Your injury has no healing. Your wound is severe. In a very short amount of time, Nineveh would be destroyed. In roughly 100 years, they would go from revival that we read about this morning to ashes. Roughly 100 years, they would go from heartfelt repentance to utter destruction. You know, that reality, it scared one commentator one modern commentator so much, he said this. He looked at our own country and he said, the speed with which our own land has apostatized, the speed with which our own land has apostatized and embraced abortion and every perversity under the sun is at least as fast as Nineveh. And a generation, we've largely followed their path. The question remains, will we escape their fate? Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. God's judgment's never hypothetical. He will deal with sin. You can take that to the bank. But the good news, as we see in this chapter, the good news for the people of Jonah's day and the good news for people in our day is that when he deals with sinners, he deals with them graciously. He's slow to anger. He's slow to anger. He's quick to forgive. And he's calling us to repentance even now. God's still in the salvation business. He's still willing to forgive of people's sins. And if God could use one broken, reluctant prophet to reach the whole people in Nineveh, just think, what could he do? If he used one broken, fallen down, reluctant prophet to reach all of Nineveh, what could he accomplish through the collected voices of you and I? Let's pray that we might find out. If you'd like to check out additional recordings or videos by Dr. Toby Holt, please visit our website at fpcgulfport.org. And if you're on the Gulf Coast, come join us at 11 a.m. Sundays at First Presbyterian Church of Gulfport, Mississippi.